talking to Ernest Cantlin earlier about uh, the reopening of Electric and talking to Williams Bar in McCurtain Street about his shop and about people not wearing masks into the shops um, and of course with Sabrina Hill about post-lockdown anxiety I think a lot of us are very nervous of doing things and I think that nervousness and anxiety about getting back into the world is causing um, a lot of stress and tension and difficulties for people you know just in in normal trying to do normal daily things and uh, I think the phrase for it now that has been coined is coronaphobia Um, Dr John Francis Leader is, is on the line good morning John Hey Deirdre how are you doing? I'm not too bad at all thanks can you tell me a bit about coronaphobia? Yeah, well, it's a term that's emerged recently because in our social media world where we only have so many characters and we're trying to sum up all these complicated feelings and thoughts, coronaphobia has is, is kind of done the job. And uh, it's interesting because, of course, you had a lot of us who were unhappy maybe about being at home. Not that I was at home, I was working all the way through it. But a lot of us that were unhappy with that. Uh, and then, of course, um, when it comes to re-emerging, some of us are uncomfortable about that as well uh, because it feels strange. It feels weird to kind of get back there again. And I think we're in a really weird phase as well at the moment because really what anxiety is very much related to is a sense of control and a sense of safety. And, of course, before any of this happened, we were doing what we were doing, so that, that was okay. Then, when this happened, at least we had kind of clear and restrictive guidelines. Don't go anywhere, stay home. And although that was scary in its own way, at least it was clear. But now we're in this weird phase where we're kind of trying to re-engage and the guidelines are kind of use your own common sense. It's not necessarily clear what to do and people are doing different things. So I think that's one of the reasons why there is a fair bit of anxiety. Yeah, I mean, uncertainty causes anxiety, doesn't it? We like to, in some respects, we like to be told what to do. And there's research to show that, that, you know, people would almost rather a a more challenging thing, but they knew exactly what it was, than something that was potentially less, but there was an uncertainty. And there's a massive amount of uncertainty at the moment. And, I mean, purely just from a psychological training point of view, of course, the government campaigns, the media campaigns, for very good reason, of course, over the past number of weeks and months, have trained us to be cautious or afraid of certain situations. Mm. So then to switch after that and to say re-engage... Of course, it feels uncomfortable. And it's not that we can't do it, but I think the anxiety is completely understandable. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that has struck me about all of this is that there's been so much family tension um, among people. And um, particularly, I suppose, at the beginning of the lockdown, again, we had a lot of contact from younger people whose parents were not following the cocooning advice and who were really sort of angry and worried and upset. Um, And that has kind of continued now. Now that we're reopening, I suppose, a lot of the cocooners you know, everyone kind of eventually did have to cocoon for that period where we didn't weren't allowed to go anywhere. Um, but now that things are back opening up, it's a very fine line to sort of not behave as if everything is normal, but try and get back to some level of living. And that tension in families, I don't think that's gone away. It's a very hard thing because it's it's such a social thing, this. And that's, I think, one of the things that you know, many people have noted through this. Very often when we have an issue or a topic that's affecting people, it's affecting a certain group of people, mm. but not another group. Now, of course, it's not to say that this affects everybody equally by any means. It certainly doesn't. However, at the same time, there is an effect to everybody. We at least know, you know what the issue is and there's some common effects. But the problem, I suppose, with this is in order to 
do well by it, it requires us to kind of collaborate and synchronize with each other. And that's very hard to do if you're being ultra cautious and the other person, you know, doesn't seem to care that yeah. much and somebody else is doing something in the middle. So as you're saying there, that's one of the things that can kind of fray relationships. It's the real challenge. Sometimes at the best of times, even before this, maybe our communication strategies weren't their best, but now we're kind of trust into what seems to be a life or death situation. And in certain cases, it may be for certain vulnerable groups. So trying to hit that balance, it's tricky. Like for somebody who is vulnerable now listening, and obviously we all have varying levels of vulnerability. I think some people are listening who probably don't realise they're vulnerable, maybe. Um, and you know, you, there are probably people listening who who um, who think they're invincible, but who maybe have you know could be very uh, susceptible to it. Um, but with regards to people who have identified their vulnerability and who are suffering from the this coronaphobia, who have a fear of kind of doing anything, what would your advice to them be? Well, I think the main thing to do is to, to I think, appreciate, if you're listening to this and you're feeling that way, to appreciate how you feel, and, and I mean that, other people to appreciate how they feel, and they can appreciate that those feelings are coming up for a reason, because the problem here, I think, is when we talk about a phobia classically, usually, clinically, what we mean by a phobia is a disproportionate amount of anxiety to the actual risk that's there. You know, yeah. So if there's a big risk, it's fine to feel lots of anxiety, that it would actually be a problem not to have the anxiety if there is a big risk. Uh, however, this isn't a situation where there is no risk. And to be fair, it's a situation where everybody, including the experts, are trying to figure it out as we go along. Mm. So this is a rather unique situation compared to most other situations. So I think the fact that there is some anxiety, and as I say, with the various reinforcement and listening to the ads and things like that warning you, it's no wonder, I suppose, for at least some of the population that there is still some of that anxiety. Now, in terms of addressing that, I think the main thing to do, having appreciated how valid it is, is that as weeks and I suppose months go by, it is still perfectly okay to have some level of ease and relaxation as well as a kind of a healthy caution as well. Mm. So the point is the two can coexist to some degree. Now, it's up to you at what pace you move when it comes to re-engaging. Not everybody's going to do it at the same pace. And that's kind of part of the community thing because there'll always be a few risk takers will do the thing first and then a few people in the middle will start doing it. And then a few people who are the last to adopt anything, whether it's new technology or whether it's re-engaging. Yeah. So it does have to happen kind of slowly and in stages for different people. But I like to use this example of an accelerator and a brake on a car or the same if you cycle or you walk, that if we have the accelerator down the whole time, that's risky, obviously. Mm. But you don't want the brakes on the whole time either. So it's kind of finding that balance in the middle. And you can't just kind of learn it off. You can't just avoid everything because that itself is risky in a way. Yeah. You know, we need to live to some degree too. So you might think, oh my God, if I'm learning to drive or cycle, how will I ever learn when to push forward and when to pull back? But you kind of do, isn't it? It becomes kind of a reflex over time to know to gently slow down, to speed up. So I think that's what we need to get good at supporting each other and doing, having that kind of relaxation, but also engagement proportionately. That's a very good analogy, actually. And I think um, what you mentioned support. And one of the difficulties then with, for people who are very anxious and who are justifiably anxious because they have, you know, underlying conditions or whatever it is, for those of us who are dealing with them or who maybe are living with them or working with them or a family member, um, what approach do we take in, in I suppose, supporting them? 
Yeah, I think it's a combination of, firstly, validating the feelings. Again, understanding that you know it's probably not a surprise that they are there. Uh, there's some people who feel anxiety anyway in the best of times. So, what to speak of you know everything that's been going on? I think that's very reasonable, and that goes a long way. I think because. A lot of the time what people who experience anxiety find is that if their anxiety isn't appreciated, I don't mean siding with it and doing nothing, but Mm. if it's not appreciated to some degree, then almost the anxiety feels the need to be there as a protective mechanism. Like you're walking near the edge of a cliff and somebody says, ah, don't worry, it's grand. You go, no, hold on a minute. No, (laughs) (laughs) you kind of push back a bit more because we need a certain amount of caution. So validating it is important. But I think the other thing we can do if we are supporting other people in our life who are in that situation is to some degree choose our battles as well. Mm. Because re-engagement isn't this binary thing where, again, we just put the foot to the floor in the accelerator and do everything in life or don't do anything. And if you think about it, even before coronavirus, we didn't presumably live that way anyway. Maybe a certain Mm. percentage of the population did, but we would be cautious before we do certain things we still have some degree of moderation so to be able to talk to somebody and say well what are at least some ways that you can bring in relaxation even if you keep your anxiety around re-engaging for example Mm. what are other sources of wellness that could be brought in even if you work as a firefighter and you're putting out fires all day you still need to relax between shifts you know so it's not to demean the importance of the work but it's to bring in that relaxation in ways they feel safe doing and then if there can be re-engagement how can you take it kind of bit by bit like going to a gym you don't go on day one and pick up the heaviest machine you can and try and get super fit. You hopefully take it in stages and kind of stretch the muscles and they're going to feel safer in stages. So something like that, kind of validation and choosing your battles does tend to be helpful. Okay. And I suppose um, along the, the road from that is these family situations where, I mean, we've heard quite a bit about it. Um, say, for example, you have young people who are going out partying or, you know, doing things that aren't in line with the advice and who are maybe engaging in some risky behaviour. And obviously it's not just young people, but I will use that as an intergenerational example for, for what the, the situation. Say you have young people going out partying in a household where there is somebody else who is vulnerable. Um, or people, say, engaging in travel and not quarantining, um, again, in a, vul- a household where there's somebody vulnerable. There are a lot of situations now where a person in a vulnerable, vulnerable position or who perceives themselves to be vulnerable might be experiencing feelings of betrayal and feeling that those other family members, you know, aren't, uh, are being selfish or aren't um, thinking this through and aren't acting in their best interests. How do you deal with that within a family? Yeah, it's a really tricky one. And, you know, as in some of the examples you're giving, there's so many variants of this as well that probably Mm. require different measures. And then sometimes before any of the the recent events have happened with coronavirus, sometimes there already aren't maybe brilliant lines of communication or coordination there, which just kind of compounds it a bit more. So I think the the solution to all of this is really good conversations. As I just said, sometimes that's hard to start at this point. However, you could look at it the other way. Maybe this is a good time to start it. You know, maybe this is something that kind of helps families or groups of people that are living together have those conversations and coordinate and maybe communicate their needs a little bit more. What I think is really important to aim for in this uh, is, again, this kind of non-binary thinking, because if it's this push-pull, if it's Mm. this idea that person X has an absolute right to go out and live their life to the fall and how dare you stop them, or person Y has an absolute right to be safe and how dare you threaten that, 
the problem is those needs that each of those people have are really being met. So some degree of coordination or compromise is needed. And I think in speaking to in speaking to everybody, but I think particularly to, to, to younger people, because you know when we're a bit younger, particularly in the, the kind of the, the teenage stage, uh, really, literally, neurologically, we're not capable of processing risk in the same way. Mm. <laughs> we don't quite have that capacity. So sometimes it does need to be spelled out a bit more, but also we need to be able to speak on the language, I suppose, of somebody who's in that place. So the, very often a good way to have the conversation is not so much what should or shouldn't happen, but what are the consequences of, of it happening. So, you know, if you want to go to that party, okay, you can do that. It's not that you can necessarily be stopped, but as a result, that means you can't see granddad for a while. Mm. So, you know, what, what does that then mean in terms of this Sunday? So it's not even you should or you shouldn't, but how can we kind of work that out and maybe arrive at some sort of a balance that is meeting people's needs for social connection and safety and, and so on. So they're tricky enough conversations to have, but they're so worthwhile having. And the good thing is even a little progress in that kind of communication can actually do wonders for relationships generally, aside from corona safety. Mm. Yeah, and um, I suppose one of the things that came up, I think maybe midway through quarters, the way through lockdown, and we I think we featured somebody on the show about it at the time, was that there's there's no psychologist on effort or no psychiatrist um, and nobody in when giving the public health advice obviously public health is a specialty a medical specialty yeah. and that's that's you know that's in and of itself but there was nobody on effort saying well are we not going to balance you know medical need versus psychological need because at the end of the day they're the same thing yeah, this is a, a common complaint. I'm a member of the Psychological Association and, and uh, I'm, you know, on a number of groups as well where we're regularly dealing with, with this type of issue. It's interesting because mental health as a buzzword tends to be used quite a lot. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes the representation doesn't quite follow. So yeah, I absolutely couldn't agree with you more on that. It is something we really need to take into account. And typically what happens, uh, and by the way, in practice, you know, the medical community and the psychological community do tend to cooperate very well together when we're just talking about kind of policy and making sure it's well represented and that definitely does need to happen more. But th the issue, I suppose, a lot of the time is that very often it's not that anything needs to be done differently medically, but I suppose what the psychological involvement does is it helps translate things into ways that are actually applicable in the real world. Mm. <laughs> That's the key thing because, you know, it's like imagine if you're going to run an advertising or marketing campaign, but you don't have any psychology involved in it. You can yeah. talk about your product all day long, but if it doesn't actually relate to what people feel they need, you're not going to sell any of them. So it's kind of the same thing in terms of public policy communication, I think. So, of course, there has been involvement by psychologists, you know, downstream from that. And, you know, we're obviously working actively to try and help people in our various positions that we're in and in the community and in private practice and in, in other places. Okay. But, yeah, as much as possible, that's, that is key. Okay, thank you for that. People can find out more at jfl.com if you run a therapy practice online. So if um, if anybody wants to find out more about that, it's yeah, jfl.com. Do indeed loads of YouTube videos as well. We do a weekly live stream as well. So you can find all the links on jfl.com if you'd like any support. Thank you very much, Dr. John Francis Leader. Very interesting conversation because, yeah, this sort of mental health as a buzzword really annoys me um, because obviously it's the, like so crucial and we pay a lot of lip service to it. But um, in terms of actually funding it and treating it as seriously as other uh, medical needs, I just don't think the, the, I don't know if the will is there. If you found this valuable, do like, subscribe and share. And what's your experience? Do you have any questions or topic suggestions? You can contribute in the comments, on social media using hashtag BodyMindSelf, or at JFL.com.